Well, good morning, everybody online, Keystone Church, uh, other people who are joining us. It's uh, so good to be with you uh, this, uh, this way, again this week, virtually. Uh, but we have uh, done some uh, work around here, and they've developed some additional technological skills. And so normally I would uh, see you all sitting in the congregation and your smiling faces, and we now are able to do that uh, online as well. So on three, I'd like you all to smile and say, good morning, Pastor Keith. And if you do it loud enough, uh, the technology is going to be able to pick it up. So on three, one, two, three. <laughs> wow, that worked really, really well. Thanks for that. Well, it is good to be together in this way, and we're grateful for the technology that does allow uh, this, and uh, hope that you're doing well. Uh, just a reminder that you can uh, either contact us online uh, on the help page when you pull up keystonechurch.org, uh, or feel free to call uh, one of the pastors or someone in the Compassion um, Ministries. We want to be the church in these days, and I want to encourage you to pray for each other. Uh, and to reach out to each other. And I, from my phone calls, it sounds like that's happening a lot, and praise God for that. We want to be the, the church in these days. Well, we're going to talk about leadership this morning. If you want to find in your Bibles, Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 27. And, and here's my fear, that when I say we're going to talk about leadership, some of you think, oh, this doesn't apply to me, and so I check out or I go to listen to another sermon or one from the past. Uh, maybe this will help. Uh, Ken Blanchard describes leadership this way. Every time you influence what someone else thinks, believes, or does, you engage in leadership. Every time you influence some, what someone else thinks, believes, or does, you're engaging in leadership. And so that means, yes, if you're a coach, you're engaging in leadership. Uh, yes, if you own a business, you're engaging in leadership. If you're a, a church pastor, an elder, a Sunday school teacher, you're engaging in leadership. If you're a parent, you're engaging in leadership. Uh, but, but really, I think it's fair to say you either are a leader or you will be a leader, no matter what your role is in church, in the home, in the business, on a team. All of us are influencing other people regarding what they think, believe, or do. Uh, Darren Patrick, uh, 20 years ago, was an up-and-coming young pastor. Uh, he planted a church out of his living room in St. Louis, Missouri, started as a Bible study of about 30 people, uh, became wildly successful, over 3,000 people, seven different locations. Uh, he, was a very, he was very prominent, not only in his community, but across the evangelical world. Um, he, was, uh, he was the chaplain of the St. Louis Cardinals baseball team. Uh, he was vice president of the Acts 29 church planning ministry that has about 800 churches around the world. Um, he was uh, writing books. He was in high demand as, as far as a speaker. Married, had four children. And a day came in 2016 when his elders sat him down and said, Darren, uh, we need to relieve you of your responsibilities. Oftentimes when that conversation happens, uh, unfortunately, it is uh, sexual immorality is the problem. That wasn't the case here, although it might have been leading there. Um, Darren had been having some inappropriate contact and conversations with 
uh, two women in particular. But actually it was the culmination of a number of years of elders working with Darren uh, regarding patterns of what they described as deep sin. And here were a couple of them. Uh, he refused personal accountability. Um, he was domineering uh, to those under his authority, abused his power, uh, a pattern of manipulation and lying. But here was the kicker. They said that he was building an identity through ministry and media platforms. He was building an identity. In other words, who he was was being determined by the prominence that he had, the popularity that he had, where he spoke and the books that he wrote and the influence that he was having. That he was building this identity that was really kind of apart from his church through ministry and media platforms. Uh, not too long ago, praise God, Darren responded to that rebuke and the elders' concern for him in a, in a way that not always occurs with guys in this situation. Uh, he followed the instructions of his elders, went through 26 months of kind of rehabilitation, repentance, a lot of counseling, both individually as well as uh, he and his wife, uh, marriage counseling. And today he is uh, back in ministry as a pastor at Seacoast Church. He sat down with Ed Stetzer recently and <clears throat> had a conversation about what happened, how, how he got to where he uh, got to, what happened in the subsequent years. And Darren made this summary statement of what had taken place to get him to the point uh, that day when the elders sat him down in 2016. He said, over time, I had slowly stopped prioritizing my relationship with Jesus and made ministry my primary focus. Over time, I had slowly stopped prioritizing my relationship with Jesus and made ministry my primary focus. And I might say that he had made this, this Christian leadership thing his primary focus. <clears throat> and I would, I would reword what he said this way. He had lost sight of who ministry was for, what ministry was for, and how it was to be conducted. And that can happen to anybody in any aspect of life if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, where we lose sight of why we're here and what we're about and who we're here for. And so I um, want to look at these verses, the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples, uh, really the night uh, uh, that he was betrayed. And you think about the implication of it, both for the men who were talking to Jesus and then the men that Jesus was talking to and what it would mean for the days ahead. The title of my message uh, today is Uncommon Leadership. Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 24. Then they began to argue among themselves, and this would have been the disciples of Jesus. They began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. And Jesus told them, in this world, the kings and great men lorded over their people, yet they are called friends of the people. And I think the NLT gets it right when they put it, that phrase in quotes. They're not really friends of the people, but they're regarded as that because they're leaders and they're supposedly serving the people. Verse 26, but among you, Jesus says, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here. The one who sits at the table is the more important 
but for me, I am among you as one who serves. Let's ask God for his help. Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. Speak to us as leaders and as prospective leaders, uh, not just who have particular roles, but who have a calling because of the Lord Jesus Christ to be men and women, boys and girls, who not only get things accomplished in the world's organizations, but who get things accomplished for your glory and for the good of this world. Namely, to be calling people to be disciples and to be better and more and more effective disciples. Uh, we know that we have an enemy in this world whose ploys are often very, very subtle, um, very uh, uh, diversionary, and he is not just interested in getting to us to be full bore uh, sinning and rebelling, uh, rebelling against you, but to get us preoccupied with things that have little or no eternal significance. And so we wanna be about the business of your kingdom business, not just our kingdoms, our little kingdoms here set up on earth. And so I pray that we'd have keen ears to hear our Savior today. And for those who don't know Christ, that I'd get a glimpse of how radically different um, Jesus cast a vision for living life, all of life, not just what we might think of as church life. And pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Verses 24 and 25 try to make this point. Status does not make you a Jesus leader. Jesus says, if you want to be the kind of leader that I am coaching you to be, that I am uh, modeling before you, it's not going to be about status. Status does not make you a Jesus leader. Now, there's an incredible amount of irony taking place at this um, conversation um, because the <laughs> there's 12 disciples in the room. They're having a Passover meal as well as the first communion meal together. And they're on the cusp of seeing their leader go to his death on the cross for them. And they're quarreling about who's the greatest. Twelve men quarreling among themselves about who's the greatest and Jesus is in the room. It seems to me like anytime Jesus is in the room, he's the greatest. And yet these guys are discussing, Peter, are you the greatest? Thomas, are you the greatest? Matthew, are, are you the greatest? And they're having this debate among themselves. Uh, I'm going to ask three questions under this point. One, what were they doing? Well, they're arguing about who is the greatest, and Jesus is in the room. There's an interesting backstory to this. About a week earlier, Jesus had already taught his disciples what he taught in this moment. He already taught them to be servant leaders, to lay aside their own agendas and, and serve each other. And it happened like this. Matthew chapter 20, <clears throat> I think it's verses 20 to 28. Uh, James and John's mom came to Jesus and said, I have a request of you. And Jesus said, well, what is it? I'd like you to put my boys to your right and to your left. In other words, them have the top spots in your future kingdom. And Jesus goes on to say, well, that's not my call, first of all. And second of all, you shouldn't be lobbying for top spots in a kingdom. You should take the low spot. 
It's interesting, but Mark tells the same story in Mark 10, 35 to, 25, uh, 35 to 45. He has the boys themselves asking for this privilege of Jesus. And, you know, we've talked about how the different gospel writers often convey stories uh, from different vantage points. And I think probably what happened was that it was mom's idea from the get-go. I think she was probably a lawnmower parent trying to make the path smooth for her boys, and she wants the best for them, and you can understand that. But the boys signed on to the whole idea. And what's interesting is it says in verse 41 of Mark 10 that the other disciples, the other 10 disciples heard this conversation and it describes them as they were indignant. They're upset that James and John are trying to lobby for this, these prime spots in the future kingdom, and yet here they are a week later at the Passover celebration doing the exact same thing. They're trying to determine who's the greatest, who's the most, who's the most important person here. Second question, what were they doing? It, the, again, irony of ironies. They are getting together. Passover was always celebrated together by Jewish families, Jewish friends coming in. You just didn't usually have a Passover alone. My guess is this year, uh, Jewish families are having a Passover alone, just their families uh, and their own household this year. But that wasn't, that wasn't customary. Uh, it might have been family or an extended family. You'd, you'd be together for the Passover. And you would be together so that you could commemorate, you would look back and remember and celebrate God delivering, delivering your ancestors out of Egypt. And of course, on this night, it's a very special Passover night because it's inaugurating uh, communion, the Lord's table. You are looking ahead a few hours to when Jesus will suffer and die for the sins of the world. And so both things that you are thinking about tonight, Passover in the past, salvation through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in the future, are all about what God has done. And yet here 12 men are debating who's the greatest, and they don't have God in the mix. Third question, <clears throat> excuse me, why, why were they doing it? Why were they doing it? And here this is just a theory. I think they were doing it because they were accustomed to what I will call common leadership. Your leadership models, I think Jesus is saying to them, your leadership models have been common. So you look at king, you look at emperor, you look at governors like Pilate, you look at the chief priests, you look at the, the, the Jewish leaders, and, and what are they after? When they become leaders, why do they become leaders? And what is important to them as leaders Oftentimes, it's not the people they're, they're there to lead and to serve. It is for power, it is for prestige, and it is for privileges. That's what you're accustomed to, you disciples. That's what you, that's what you see, that's what you understand leadership to be all about. And Jesus, for three and a half years, had been teaching, teaching, teaching something different. For three and a half years, he had been modeling, modeling again and again, giving them an example of something different for three and a half years. And he had sent his men out to not only see what he does, but to do what he does. They'd gone out missionary journeys and, and, and they'd come back excited how 
The demons had submitted to them. I mean, they cast out demons. They healed people. They taught. They were doing some of the very same things that Jesus was doing. And yet here they are, three and a half years later. And I'm sure that Jesus was frustrated that night. These guys don't, still don't seem to get it. They, they still don't seem to be mature. They seem like infants. In fact, it's interesting, if you comb through the Gospels, you'll see how many times, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, how many times Jesus said, oh, you have such little faith. Your faith is so small. And one time he even says, you're faithless. So much work to be done. By the way, just as a footnote, you think about the people in, into whose lives you are investing, whether it's your children or whether it's, it's student athletes and you're a coach, whether it's your employees, whether it's your friends, whether it's brothers or sisters in the, in the body of Christ that you are trying to minister to and help and nurture, and you think, oh, man, maybe it's a, a, somebody you led to Christ two years ago, and you think they should be so much further down the road by now than they are. Think about it, this is the, the, the Son of God himself, three and a half years of intensive training, and there's still so much room to grow. Now, Jesus didn't have any room to grow himself, but the rest of us do. And it's a great reminder when we work with people and we see their shortcomings, to see our own shortcomings, to be reminded of our own weaknesses, our own need to grow, our own need to see Jesus in, in greater and greater light as we work with them. Clearly, the disciples were still at a work in prog uh, progress. The last two verses of our text convey this to us. Serving makes you a Jesus leader. It's not status that makes you a Jesus leader. It's serving that makes you a Jesus leader. And verse 26, I think, is the linchpin verse, the key verse, the hinge verse of this passage. But among you, it will be different. He's just talked about what it's like with the Gentiles, with the kings, with the chief priests, these other leaders, but among you, when you lead, it will be different. Ken Blanchard and Phil Hodges wrote a book entitled Lead Like Jesus. Uh, really interesting story. Ken Blanchard was one of the gurus uh, for many, many years in, the, in business and industry. Um, he wrote The One-Minute Manager back in the early 80s, which made him a multimillionaire. He still makes a boatload of money uh, from that book. And then in 1999, uh, God got a hold of him, uh, partly through the ministry of uh, Bill Hybels, and he eventually became a follower of Jesus. And he and Phil Hodges wrote this book, Lead Like Jesus. And one of the things that he said in there is we continue to see that the most persistent barrier to leading like Jesus is a heart motivated by self-interest. Let me read that again. We continue to see that the most persistent barrier to leading like Jesus is a heart motivated by self-interest. You see, our instinctive style of leadership is uh, common. Inst instinct, if, if I want to go through um, the books that are available on Amazon.com, they're all, they're all about, most of them are about common leadership. You do what you need to do so that you can make a lot of money in your business. You do what you need to do so that your team can um, have a lot of wins. You do what you need to do so that your kids become well-behaved or so they like you or whatever the goal is. You do what you need to do for these self-serving 
reasons. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, among you, it will be different. Not it must be, it will be different. Our leadership is uncommon. Mine has been these last three and a half years, and now I expect yours to be from here on as well. And then Jesus explains why that is the case in verse 27. I am among you as one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. This is what I've been trying to teach you for three and a half years. It's not about you, Peter. It's not about you, John. It's not about you, Bartholomew. It is about the people that you serve. It's about the people that I give you to serve. It's about the people that you are called to love. Our leadership is uncommon. I'm among you as one who serves, and you are to be among others as one who serves. And what's interesting is that it wasn't that long ago, at least if I have the chronology right, it wasn't that many minutes ago that when the men assembled in this room this night for the Passover, that Jesus got a basin of water, he got a towel, and then he got down on his knees and he did what a rabbi would never do. He did what a, the Son of God should never have done. He washed the dirty feet of his disciples. That's not what would happen when you would go into a home in the Middle East in that day. Uh, the, the man who owned the home would sit at the table and his servants would wash his feet and wash the guests' feet. This was, a, this was an assignment of the low, for the lowliest of the low in, in the house. If you ever go to a banquet and you have a meal, um, <clears throat> you, you don't serve yourself. Usually you have someone whose assignment it is to bring the food to your table and to some, uh, to some way serve you. And Jesus, did, Jesus turned the tables. He turned everything upside down. He got down on his knees and he washed his feet. It was so um, unlikely and so unthought of that Peter... Peter was upset that Jesus would even consider doing it. He said, you don't, you don't wash my feet. And Jesus said, well, if you, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part of me. Oh, well, if that's the case, then, then give me the whole, the whole deal. But you think about how poorly that illustration, that sermon illustration, if you will, uh, apparently played out to these men's lives, that Jesus had done this, he showed them, he not only was teaching them about servanthood, he's showing them about servant leadership. And then not long later, they're having this conversation about who is the greatest. Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. <clears throat> Go back to the conversation where James and John originally asked Jesus for the top spots in the kingdom. And this is how Jesus finished out that conversation, that teaching time with them. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, uh, Mark 10, 45. <clears throat> this was really the capstone of all that Jesus was trying to teach his disciples. In other words, he wasn't just trying to teach them that it would be a good idea to serve. He's trying to teach them, you are called to be like me. You are called to live like I live. You are called to function like I function. And I came from heaven to serve you, to give my life as a ransom for you. <clears throat> and what came out of that was entirely unexpected by everybody from the high priest to Gamaliel to Shirley Pilate, Herod, all of the guys of the day, and probably even all of the Jewish people. 
what came out of what Jesus taught these men to be like and the kind of leaders that he taught them to be. Um, Christianity has far out, uh, eclipsed the Roman Empire. Uh, John Ortberg once made this comment, if you were a gambler who lived 12, uh, 2,100 years ago, who would you have bet on? The Roman Empire with all of its might, military, vast communication and transportation, or a young, uneducated Jewish rabbi followed by 12 men nobody would think of hiring. And he went on to say, and here we are, 2,000 years later, and people still name their children Jesus, Jesus, or Peter, or Paul, or Mary. And they name their dogs Nero or Caesar. Who would you have bet on? So let me wrap up with uh, five points that mark a Jesus kind of leader. Five points that mark a Jesus kind of leader. The basic starts this way. A Jesus leader loves Jesus most. A Jesus leader loves Jesus most. That's what I'm all about. Not all about making money. Not all about seeing how many likes I can get on social me media. I'm not all about winning. Ultimately, a Jesus leader loves Jesus most. Number two, a Jesus leader is a follower of Jesus. That's what we mean when we use the word disciple today. Is a follower of Jesus whose life's priority is making other disciples. A Jesus leader is a follower of Jesus whose life's priority is making other disciples. Number three, a Jesus leader is more interested in the good of those he leads than he is in his own good. He's more interested in the good of those he leads than he is of his own good. Number four, <clears throat> a Jesus leader is more interested in her people than her projects or her profit. A Jesus leader is more interested in her people than her projects or her profit. And lastly, a Jesus leader does what's in his followers' best interest, even if they object. A Jesus leader does what's in the followers' best interest, even if they object. And, and I'm going to use as, as an example uh, something that applies to many of, of you. Let's just think about your leadership role as a parent. So you're a mom or dad, you, you have a seven-year-old, you have a 10-year-old, you have a, a three-year-old. And I wonder how many times, I, I go back in my own parenting years and think about how many times this was uppermost in my mind. Whatever I have to do here, I, I love Jesus most. I, that's, that's where I start. I love Jesus most. And as a follower of Jesus, my priority is making other disciples. So I've got a seven-year-old daughter. And my priority right now is doing all I can to help her become a disciple or help her become a better disciple of Jesus. That's going to influence the discipline I do, the words I say, the tone I take, all of that. My, as a follower of Jesus, my life's priority right now with my daughter is to make her a disciple or make her a better disciple. <clears throat> and, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm more interested in her good than my good. I'm not just interested in having peace in the house and seeing her not fight with her brother. I'm more interested in what 
progress she can make as a disciple of Jesus than I am in my own peace and uh, in, in my own agenda. I want her just to stay off my back so I can get dinner to get together. No, I'm most interested. I'm going to put aside what I'm doing right now because I'm most interested in what she needs. I, I'm most interested in her, far more interested than I am in getting supper ready, far more interested than I am in and making sure that I get this accomplished, I get the ceiling painted here. No, I'm most interested in her good. And I am most interested in her best interests, even if she objects. And this is especially important with parenting, obviously. There are many times what we are trying to teach our children to do, what we're trying to uh, teach them, how we're trying to teach them to think. They, they don't go along with us. They object. And when they get to teenage years, it seems like they object all the time that's not that doesn't matter our call is to as a disciple of jesus christ who is most interested in making disciples is that we're going to do what's in her best interest what his best interest is even if they object that's going to be true on the team that's going to be true in the workplace if it's in their best interest they might not like it they might object but my first responsibility is to jesus i'm a jesus leader first and foremost. Uh, back in 2007, Bill Hybels wrote a book called When Leadership and Discipleship Collide. Now, Bill Hybels, um, before he was forced to resign a couple years ago, was kind of the, the pioneer of the megachurch, um, did a lot of things really well. When I was in seminary uh, north of Chicago, our family often went to Willow Creek. Uh, we often took guests there to hear Bill speak. He was a phenomenal communicator. And he would have been, by the world's definition, a, a very good leader, I would say, a, but a common leader. Wrote countless books on leadership, began a, a global conference on leadership that is still attended by many, many people around the world. And I had tremendous respect for Bill uh, up until this uh, wave of accusations by women began to be leveled about, uh, against him a number of years ago about what was happening behind the scenes over the years. I, I had a lot of respect for him. Didn't agree about, with him about everything. But I would say the main bone that I would had, have had to pick with Bill Hybels uh, was his, his thoughts about leadership. Because as I would read his books, I would see he, he was... Um, very quick to pluck from business and secular organizations uh, how leadership, leadership should be done. And I think that's back to the, the common leadership that Jesus said it's going to be different for us. And when I read the title of that book, I, I didn't read that book, but I thought that exemplifies the problem that I saw. Because if we do leadership the way Jesus both showed us to and taught us to do leadership, leadership and discipleship don't collide. They're, 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 there's an intrinsic harmony between the two. This is the reason that we lead. This is the re reason that we are called to lead. This is the reason that we have the privilege to, to lead. It's not for profit motive. It's not for team wins, ultimately. It's not to raise children who look good and sound good and behave well. 
It is to make disciples who in turn will make other disciples. I, mean, I should clarify something I wanted to do earlier. I don't want to miss this before I leave. When we think about discipleship or making disciples, too often we have in our minds, oh, that's the kind of thing that we do if we go with Ellen and B.J. Miller into Lancaster or into Park City and talk with people about Jesus, pray with them, and and share our faith with them. No, no, no. Discipling is a lifelong process. I I am being discipled. I have had some phone conversations this week uh, that people discipled me. Um, my wife disciples me, and I disciple her. Um, hopefully, I'm helping disciple you this morning, and, and you will disciple others around you. Discipling means that we are growing. We are becoming more and more effective uh, disciples of Jesus Christ. And so some of us might, never have the, might not have the privilege to lead many people to Jesus Christ in our lives. But if we are intentional about it, we are going to be helping to make better and better, more and more faithful disciples all the time in our churches, in our communities, in our families, in the groups in which we're a part of. So I, I hope that you understand. And we think about in being influencers who are affecting how other people think and how they believe and the things that they do, that we are influencing disciples and hoping to influence them to be disciples who are not just trying to be better disciples, but who are also making disciples as well. Again, I want to leave you with verse 26. Jesus looks at us, and he looks at the world and how they do leadership, and he says to us, but it will be different for you. I pray that it will be different for you, and I pray that it will be different for me. Father, that's my my prayer. I, I plead with you to make us Uh, those of us who know Jesus Christ, to make us the kind of leaders who are preoccupied with, it's always in the back of our mind, whether we're trying to win the the field hockey game or whether we are trying to boost uh, our sales in our company or whether we are trying to impact more people for Jesus in the church or or whether we are simply trying to grow our our sons and daughters to become um, uh, disciples of Jesus Christ that we would lead in an uncommon fashion and not fall prey to the common leadership uh, tactics that are all over the place around us and constantly trying to squeeze us into their mold, that we would uh, fulfill Jesus' claim, but it will be different among you. We pray this um, in the name of Jesus and through the power that we have in him. Amen.